The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Anybody happen to see the moon this last Tuesday evening? The thing was huge, wasn't it? Uh, Megan and I had taken our younger two down to Roka to do the pumpkin patch thing, and we're coming back up Highway 77 there, and rising up above the eastern horizon, right on the horizon, is this giant moon, right? And one of my kids asked, why is it so big now? And (laughs) I don't know if I was sick the day that we learned about the solar system in junior high, you know, I know that there's lots of you in this room who can easily answer that question. I know that I can Google it and remember all that I was taught at some point in my life, right? It would all come back to me. But off the cuff, I am just not that well-versed in how the solar system completely works. You ever been asked a question that you didn't know the answer to? (laughs) What about with the Bible? What what about with Christianity? Hmm? Has anyone ever asked you a, a question about Christianity that you know there's people in the room who, who know the answer. You know you could Google it, right? But off the cuff, you're really not all that well-versed in some of the intricacies. Now listen, today, what, what I want us to hear is that questions are good. Right? Questions are, are normal. This is a safe place to have questions. We welcome that at Two Pillars Church. And so if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, or if you're here this morning and you're a new Christian, or if you're here and you're, you've been a Christian for quite a long while, listen, it is okay to have questions. It's normal. It, it, it is okay to, to wrestle, to not have it all figured out. We're not afraid of that here. We're not afraid of questions about Christianity. Now, there's some limits, okay? You know, God, God is the one who is all-knowing. No one in this room is, right? And the Bible has revealed truth to us about God, okay? Fundamental to what it means to be a Christian is to trust in the authority of God's word. It's our objective source, we say. And so there are, there are answers in here, right, to your questions that sometimes might make you ask another question that we don't have the answers to. Because the answer, quite frankly, might just be, God says so. Now, none of us inherently like that answer, do we? (laughs) I mean, growing up, if you asked your parents to do something, and they said no, and you asked why, and they said, because I said so, that was never satisfying, was it? No, and and yet we submit to them because they're our parents. We, We honor them by taking them at their word, or, or we don't. And we rebel. We ignore them. We blow them off. What do they know after all, we think? And we ignore their authority. And I say all that because we have questions. One of our questions, though, must be, will we be satisfied with the answers? Will we submit to God? Will we honor God? Or or will we try to rewrite the word of God to better match the answers that we'd much rather prefer to receive? This is super important as we talk about the gospel, okay, especially here at church, knowing that there are those of us here with questions. It's super important as you talk about the gospel with others around you in your life, knowing that they have questions, knowing that they have objections even to the gospel. And the point that I want to make for us this morning is simply this, that behind every objection to the gospel, 
there lies an honest question that deserves an honest answer. In our passage today, Paul is interacting with objections. He's interacting with with questions. There are nine question marks in my translation of this passage. Remember what he's doing. He's interacting with these objections, the questions that he knows will arise as people hear the gospel, especially in this section of the book of Romans, non-Christian Jews. See, up till this point, ever since chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has been striving to remove all the ground upon which we try to stand before God and prove ourselves to be righteous apart from Christ. He's been cutting away at all the ways that we try to prove ourselves to be good before him. Last week was all about pointing out to the non-Christian Jews that nothing can save them from the wrath of God except for Jesus This good news about Jesus, right? The the gospel, that's the answer, right? But as Paul preaches this gospel, he always encounters objections. Look at how he responds, though. He he doesn't say, believe me. (laughs) You know, he he doesn't say, "Ah, just trust me on this one. He he doesn't even say, you know what, I'm an apostle and I said so. No, he labors to interact with these objectors. He knows that behind every objection to the gospel lies an honest question that deserves an honest answer. How does he know that? Well, probably because he himself used to have some of the very same questions. I mean, remember who it is that we're dealing with here. It's Paul, who used to be Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, before becoming a Christian. He knows the Jewish objections so well because they used to be his own. He used to have the very same questions, and so he doesn't say, just get in line and believe it already. He doesn't say, your questions are ridiculous. Stop being so annoying. No, he lovingly labors to persuade them. He loves them. He longs for them to know and trust in Jesus. We have to see the heart of Paul here in the letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 9, he tells us that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for them. He wishes that he himself could be cut off and accursed from Christ so that they would be brought into Christ. Honest answers to honest questions. That's what Paul's up to in this passage. And there's four questions here. Four questions that Paul will answer for us. I mean, there's nine question marks, but we're going to boil this down to four questions that apply to us. Honest questions that we or others that we interact with may have. Number one, why is the Bible so doggone important? Okay, Paul's going to answer that for us here. Number two, is God faithful? Number three, is God fair? And number four, if the gospel is true, does holiness actually matter? Honest questions, deserving honest answers. Question number one, why is the Bible so important? You may notice that that's not exactly the question that he directly addresses here, okay? But it's one that we'll get an answer to applicationally as we look at Romans 3 verses 1 and 2. Remember, immediately before our passage today, Paul has been telling them that he's been telling them that their knowledge of the law won't save them. That their moralism, their behavior won't save them. That circumcision won't save them either. And he knows the objection that comes next. He states it here in verse 1. Remember, Paul is writing using a literary technique known as a diatribe, interacting with, as he writes, the objections that he knows knows so well and he knows will arise as um, he preaches the gospel and they hear all this. And so having heard what he just wrote in chapter 2, the objection comes in verse 1. 
what then advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? It's a pretty good question when you think about it. It's an honest question. I mean, you have to think, this is a a non-Christian Jew asking, are you really saying and teaching that Jewish people had no advantage whatsoever over the Gentiles, Paul? Are you really saying that Abraham wasn't important? Didn't God choose him? You know, that when God gave him the promises and made a covenant with him and introduced circumcision and formed this nation for himself, are you saying that none of that matters? God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt and, and giving them the law and telling them in Deuteronomy 7 that they were his chosen people. Was all that a lie, Paul? Leading them into the promised land, chasing out their enemies, giving them a king, multiple kings, setting them up as a nation, giving them the prophets. Was that all a big waste of time? Does it really make any, does it, does it really not make any difference at all? I mean, you'd essentially be saying that there's no value in the Old Covenant. You would essentially be saying that there's no, there's no value in God's Old Testament people or really the Old Testament at all. No distinction between us and the Gentiles? You seem to be saying, throw, throw it all away, throw this much of my Bible, just throw it away. None of it matters. That's their objection. To which Paul responds, that's not what I'm saying at all. All I've been saying, Paul says, is that the fact that you are a Jew, the fact that you have the law, the fact that you have been physically circumcised does not automatically save you and make you immune from the wrath of God. See, Paul doesn't say that there's no difference at all. He's been saying there's no difference from the standpoint of salvation. What's the value, then, of of being a Jew? What's the value of circumcision? Well, verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, Paul says to begin with here, and he only gives one reason. Did you notice that? It's not until Romans 9, much later, that he's going to elaborate far more by saying, these are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But here he says, to begin with. First and foremost, he says, to the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God. That's the chief advantage. And oracles here means the scriptures, the the Old Testament. They, They had it all by then. This was the Jewish Bible, and it was a huge advantage to them, Paul says. And listen, as we reflect on this, it helps us answer the question, why is the Bible so important? I mean, do you see it? What's the advantage of being a Jew, they asked Paul, an honest question. You have the scriptures, Paul replies. An honest answer. And we should ask ourselves, why is that such an advantage? Well, first and foremost, it's the word of God. That there's no higher privilege as a human being, as the, as the created, than to be spoken to directly from God. The creator. I mean, think about that. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, what did God say to his people through Moses? What was was the reason? What reason did God give for having dealt with them the way that he did in the wilderness? 
It says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know what? The man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You and I and Jewish people from of old, we do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word. The the, the oracles, he calls it in Romans 3. This thing right here. It's what gives us life. It's what gives us being. It's what gives us everything. It's one of the reasons that it's so important. It's the chief reason it's so important. Or think about it the other way around. If there's no higher privilege for a human being than to be spoken to directly by God, it is equally true that it is a great disadvantage, a great loss to not have the word of God. This is what God spoke to his disobedient people, warning them in Amos 8, verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. And we hear that and go, oh no, no food. This is not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. What's more horrible than a loss of bread? The loss of the word of God, that's what. What we hold in our hands, like what you have in your lap and maybe multiple copies laying around your house, right? It's the word of God. Just we do not live by groceries from Aldi's alone. It's, it's right here that it gives us life. This thing, it it tells us who God is. It tells us what he's like. It tells us what he's done. It tells us of the coming Messiah, the the first coming that the Jews would have known about or should have known about, and the second coming, right? It tells us of the gospel. It tells us of hope. That's why the Bible is so important. And we don't just learn about God, we hear from God. We hear and learn that he is with us. We hear and learn that he has not left us. We hear and learn that he's not just with us and around us, that he's actually in us. He's ruling, he's reigning, he's returning. Which means we have hope beyond this broken world. We have hope beyond all the pain and all the suffering. You have hope beyond the relational brokenness that you're experiencing this year. You have hope beyond the loneliness. You have hope beyond the depression. Hope beyond your body breaking down. Hope beyond the current milieu of problems that you're facing. Hope that goes beyond a pandemic and getting back to normal because this thing tells us about the real normal. Friends, this life is not normal. It's not. Death is not normal. Sickness is not normal. All the tears that you've cried are not normal. No, normal is unhindered life with our glorious God. Perfect communion with and enjoyment of Him. Normal is what we will finally enjoy when Christ returns and He wipes away all of our tears and He takes away all of our pain and He removes all of our sin and there is no more sickness and He puts death to death. That's normal. Then, and only then, will we know normal. And listen, the only way that we know about all of that is here. It's here. 
How else do we know about any of that? How else do we have any hope? The only way that we know about Jesus is here. The only way that we know how to be right before God is here, counted right before God is here. And therefore, the only way that we know how to be safe from his wrath when he returns is here. This is why the Bible is so important. You know, Christianity didn't just drop down out of the sky somewhat recently as a set of ideas. And now, boy, isn't it great, we have this book that kind of backs it up for the most part. No, the word of God came first. God spoke. It was written down. This is the source. This is the objective truth upon which we stand. The old London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689, over 330 years old, says it this way. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. This is really important in our day where it's popular to reject the historic orthodox position of the faith and instead hold to a semi-biblical, generally, you know, generically religious belief in God, but not so much the God of the Bible. Or to argue that Scripture is not sufficient or not certain or not infallible. But my friends, Christianity is not open to our tweaking. It is not open to our modifying. We can't take the parts that we like, like no more tears, everybody likes that part. (laughs) No more pain, I'm a big fan. (laughs) No more death, we we can't take the parts that we like and leave out the parts that we don't like, like sin and repentance and wrath and judgment. That's not being intellectually honest with how you're handling God's word if that's what you're up to. What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision belonging to his old covenant community? Much in every way, Paul says. You were entrusted with the very word of God. Why is the Bible so important for us? An honest question deserving an honest answer in our day. It's the same answer that was given in Paul's day. It's the very word of God. And if we don't get that square, we won't get any of the other questions square either. We won't have an objective source to appeal to. We'll be left with the modern malaise of subjective truth. Where you have your truth and I have my truth, a denial of objective truth, which we, we must all intellectually agree, that can't be true. Because I hope you see if everything is true, nothing is. This then leads us to the second question. Is God faithful? But look at, look at verse 3 here in the text. It says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? It's an honest question. Again, deserving another honest answer. Is God faithful? See, the reason he went like this. I hear you saying, Paul, that the Jews had the oracles. Okay, they had the Old Testament scriptures. And you're saying that was an advantage. But, but evidently, it really wasn't. I mean, after all, some were unfaithful. That word can also be translated, did not believe. Now remember what a big part of the Old Testament was meant to do. It was meant to point ahead to who? To Jesus. Isn't that why Jesus walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, all the Old Testament scriptures concerning himself. See, their objection here, the the non-Christian Jewish objection that Paul is addressing here was saying, if you say, Paul, that the advantage of having the scriptures was to prepare them for this Jesus that you're preaching, 
Evidently, it didn't work out all that well. Look, some of them don't believe. Many, in fact. Paul's kind of generous here. Some, he says. Some are unfaithful. And so doesn't their unfaithfulness, their unbelief, doesn't it nullify then the faithfulness of God? And Paul's response is actually a little stronger than the ESV renders it here. By no means, verse 4 reads, but the essence is more like, not on your life. Not in a thousand years. And then he adds this quotation. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, he quotes Psalm 51, which we rehearsed in our corporate confession earlier, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, how do we make sense of Paul's response here? Well, we have to go back to Psalm 51. What's the context of Psalm 51? If you know your Old Testament, you, you, this is David's psalm of repentance after his horrible sin with Bathsheba and hiring a hit on her husband Uriah. Now, David, of course, was a chosen one of God, chosen from all of his brothers and installed as king. God's favor, you might remember, was upon him, and yet he sinned in a horrible way. He was not faithful to pick up the language from Romans 3. And David is saying in Psalm 51, in effect to God, there was a time when I thought that you were wrong and I didn't deserve punishment. You'll recall that until Nathan the prophet confronted David about his sin, David mostly went along with his life like none of it was a really big deal. But now, Nathan has confronted him, David's been cut to the heart, and he's confessing his sins before the Lord. And he says, I have nothing to plead before you. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Your judgment against me is just. When the facts are revealed, I was unfaithful, God, but that in no way nullifies the faithfulness of God. He is justified in his words, in his judgment of me, David says, he prevails. Now, back in Romans 3, Paul is saying, just because David was unfaithful, <laughs> it doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. God is always justified by his words. He always does what is good and right and perfect. He shall always prevail when judged through the eyes of man. In fact, the unfaithfulness of God's Old Testament people actually serves to further prove the generous, steadfast, merciful faithfulness of God. Their failure and unfaithfulness didn't bring God's purpose to nothing. No, in spite of them, God's purpose still went on. You know, a good takeaway for us um, for this might be that God's faithfulness ought never be judged by the unfaithfulness of his people. God's faithfulness ought never be judged by the unfaithfulness of his people. Oh, how we need to be reminded of that. In our day of the rise and fall of such and such a church or this and that ministry or fill in the blank mega pastor or even the walking away from the faith by a close family or family member or friend, we can be tempted to question the faithfulness of God when that happens. We can be tempted to judge God unfaithful merely because his people have been. But friends, that is to look at it completely backwards. God is never unfaithful, not on your life, Paul says. 
In every situation, he will always be found to have been on the right side of history, to use the same. His good purpose goes on. He, he is not dependent upon the faithfulness of his people. His promises and purposes are not either. That is actually massively reassuring. <laughs> it should be. In fact, it's precisely because of the unfaithfulness of his people that we need the good news found in the gospel. The dark night sky of our unfaithfulness is what casts the brilliant, bright, shining faithfulness of God in such glorious light. Which leads then, I hope you see logically, to the next question. Is God fair? Is he fair? I've heard this question before. Some of you have asked it in various ways. I've asked it myself at a certain point in my faith journey. It's an honest question. Another honest question deserving another honest answer. And there's a number of different ways that the question kind of percolates to the surface. But let's look at it to the surface here in Romans 3. Look at verse 5. And it's actually asked again slightly differently down in verse 7. Beginning in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Now listen, if you've ever read the book of Romans before, if you're familiar with it at all, you might recognize that Paul brings this question up in greater detail in chapters 9 through 11. He addresses it in, in much more detail, much more depth there, but here we have it in a nutshell. The question, if we were to rephrase it, to maybe make it a little simpler for us to just kind of get our heads around, is this. If the dark night sky of our unfaithfulness is what casts the bright shining faithfulness of God, glorious light, isn't there a little bit of a conflict of interest there? Isn't this unfair of God? Here's another way to ask it. If the unfaithfulness of God's people in the Old Testament serves to show forth in great glory the faithfulness of God as he rescues them and redeems them, how is it that he can judge them then for that which he benefits from? Didn't he just set them up to fail so he could succeed? Do you see the question? Put it in more personal terms. If you sin... And God uses that sin. If your unrighteousness is necessary to show forth his righteousness, how is it that he can judge you for that sin? Would it be unfair of him to inflict wrath upon you then? Wouldn't it be unfair to, for him to condemn you for it? After all, he's profiting from it. His truth is abounding to his glory in this situation. Or maybe once more in terms of the gospel. This, after all, is where the objections are coming from. Remember, Paul is addressing objections to the gospel. If your non-believing friend is living in sin, but Jesus died for sin, including hers if she trusts in him, and if by dying for her sin, he is glorified and made much of and praised, isn't it unfair to subject her to, to condemn her for sin that Jesus came to die for? Is God fair? Well, what's the answer that we get here in the Bible? 
What's the honest answer to this honest question? But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Now we have to remember that Paul's hypothetical objector here is a Jew. One who believes in God. is a worshiper of Yahweh. One who believes in the notion of sin and transgression and law. One who believes that judgment is real, just not for themselves. The Jews, remember, assumed that the Gentiles would be judged, but they thought they were immune from it. That's what Paul dealt with last week. He was telling them they're not immune from it. And so here come their objections. And Paul addresses their objections. He addresses the honest question that lies behind their objection by appealing to something that they already hold to be true. That God will judge. You see, you can't say that God would be unjust for judging. Then he couldn't be judge, even of the Gentiles. Your objection has a false premise, and you know it, Paul says. Now, this doesn't translate into our world of objections in a nice and tidy way, because we live in a world where people are eager to accept the idea that no one will be judged and all will be saved. Love wins, to quote a recent heretical author. It's a gospel of universalism that prevails in our day. Do whatever you want, live your truth, and this ambiguous God will save all in the end. He is a God of love. And he is. He is. He's also a God of judgment. Is that unfair, we still want to ask? Are you the potter or the clay, Paul will ask in Romans chapter 9. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? God asked Job in the Old Testament. God is fair. How do we know? We read the word. That's Paul's argument here, even for the Jews. God is faithful. How do we know? We read the word. Why is the Bible so doggone important? Because it reveals to us who God is and what he's like. He's faithful and fair. As we read the Bible, do you know what we see? We see, we see the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, gracious, yes. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, yes. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, yes. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yes. But who will by no means clear the guilty, yes. My friends, the way that we know that God is fair is not by looking around at our circumstances and asking the question. It's by opening the Bible and encountering the God who is here with us. Well, very well then, Paul, says the objector. Then I guess it sounds like it really doesn't matter how I live. Why not do evil that good may come, verse 8. Why not sin all the more that grace would abound all the more? He says in chapter 6 when he takes up this question in fuller form. That's what some were slanderously accusing us of preaching, Paul says. But it's not true. If that's the takeaway that you get from the gospel, he says, your condemnation is just. But it's an honest question, isn't it? If the gospel is true, Does holiness actually matter? I mean, trace out the logic here. Again, it's a very honest question. If I'm a sinner, which I am, 
And if the wrath of God is revealed against me because of my sin, which it is, and yet if Jesus came and died in my place to bear that wrath, which he did, and if he is glorified for that, made much of for that, praised for that, which he is, if my sin and his death for my sin show forth how amazing he is, which it does, why not sin even more? That his grace and his glory would abound even more. I mean, if he's glorified for these sins over here that I've already committed, why not go varsity? You know? Why not really get after it? Why not do evil that good may come? And, and listen, if in preaching the gospel, if in our preaching of the gospel, if in your sharing of the gospel, we are not at least open to that same charge, we're probably not preaching the gospel correctly. Paul preached the gospel correctly. And this is the charge. This is one of the ways that he's being slandered. And again, we have to wait until later in the letter to get the fuller and deeper response, but let me put it this way. If you come to faith in Jesus, right? if you really receive the gospel, you won't think that way. In fact, you can't. And the reason that I say that is because the Bible teaches us that when you really become a Christian, you become a part of what it calls the new covenant, the new covenant community. And in Jeremiah 31, which is quoted in Hebrews 8 in the New Testament, one of the things that we learn about the new covenant is that when we become a part of it, God puts his law within us. He writes it on our hearts. We, therefore, are those who have been born again, and we love to obey him. If you love me, Jesus says, if you belong to me, if you've been born again and circumcised in heart, what does he say? You will keep my commandments. Why? Because in the new covenant, the law has been written on your heart now. Your heart loves the law. In a sense, you've been like reprogrammed. You're running a new operating system now. When you become a Christian, and everyone who is here who is truly a Christian knows somewhat of this to be true. You long to know him more. You long to, to read the scriptures more and learn more about him and encounter him more and commune with him more. You long to serve him more and worship him more and praise him more and obey him more. Not perfectly, but persistently. And you might be sitting there this morning saying, I don't know. I, I don't know if I do. You know, I thought I did, but I feel cold in my relationship with him. I feel distanced from him. i got all these questions. But listen, do you desire to obey him more? Do you desire to praise him more and encounter him more? Do you long for answers to those questions? Start there. Listen, how you feel isn't the biggest indicator here. Look to the cross. Do you believe that he was there for you? Do you believe that you are sinful and need that? Look to the tomb. Do you believe that he was raised for you? Do you believe that he gives new life? Have you tasted his goodness and trusted in him? If so, he who began a good work in you We'll see it through to completion. Look, I, I know you still do things that you don't want to do. 
I I know you don't do things that you want to do. Paul knows that too. He knows that it was true for me, true for you, true for him. Read chapter 7. But do you delight in the law in your inner being? Has what you want to do changed? Can you cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And if so, listen to me, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. None. Does holiness matter? Yes. It matters so much that God sent his one and only son, not just to die the perfect death for you, but to live the perfect life for you. So that when you trust in him, his perfect life, his holiness is counted as yours. And now you're free to obey and you desire to obey. It's all been written on your heart. And you're going to mess up? (laughs) Of course you are. You're going to sin? The flesh isn't dead yet. We've got a lot to cover in Romans yet, don't we? But even in your sin, you confess it, and you turn from it, and you trust in him, and you obey some more, and then you fail some more, and you do it again, living an entire life of faith and repentance, and faith and repentance, faith. All the while delighting in God's word in your heart, delighting in his ways in your heart, crying out over and over along the way, wretched man that I am, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. I mean, friends, listen to Paul. I know you have objections. I know you have honest questions. Listen to what he says. Bring them to Jesus. Bring them to his word. The gospel will answer every single one of them as we turn and submit ourselves to God. Let's pray. Father, it's true of us that your law has been written on our hearts. It's true of us that our our flesh still fights against it. Lord, it's true of us that apart from Christ, we are not counted holy, but it is true of us that in Christ we are. That there is no condemnation for us. That we are your beloved. And so, Father, by your Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, help us to trust in you more. Help us to hunger after your word more and trust in your word more. Make it ever so important to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.